Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to welcome you here. We're glad you're worshiping with us today. And if it's your first time here or your first time in a while, we want to invite you. There's uh, those attendance books you should see at the end of your row. Would you uh, pass those down? And um, if you have some, you know, any new information, um, if you've if you've moved or anything like that, it would just help us if you updated that. If you're here for the first time, make note of that. There's also some other boxes you can check that can that can uh, just show us some of the some of the ways we might be able to minister to you and, and to reach out to you. Um, again, we're, we're glad you're with us. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please join me in the book of Matthew, chapter 9. The book of Matthew and the ninth chapter. The title of today's message is In His Image, Humanity and Mission. And um, we're continuing our series on uh, uh, theology on mission, and we're talking about various theological truths or topics that Scripture teaches on, and what that means for our life as we as we seek to go on mission, and and uh, how how these these particular truths may stir our hearts to be more effective in engaging that calling that God has placed on us. And today we're looking at the the doctrine of humanity. The Bible teaches a great deal about who we are and, and what God has made us to be and why he cares for us so much. In um, this week I was, I was reading and came across a, a philosopher by the name of Emmanuel Levinas. He was a French philosopher. Uh, he was also Jewish. And when World War II began, he uh, went to go fight in the, on the front lines of the war and was taken, uh, taken captive, taken prisoner by the Nazis and put in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, because he had been a, a, a fighter and because it was a prisoner of war camp, he was not sent off to a concentration camp. But because he was Jewish, he was treated very, very poorly, as you can imagine, by his Nazi captors and was just constantly... Uh, he reflected on and, and wrote about the degradation and the, the humiliation that, that he and his fellow captors faced at the hands of the Nazis. And uh, he, he reflected, though, upon a, an act of God's grace that was given to him by a dog named Bobby while he was a prisoner there. He writes of Bobby, he says this, he says, about halfway through our long captivity, for a few short weeks, before the sentinels were able to chase him away, a wandering dog entered our lives. One day, he came to meet this rabble of prisoners as we returned under guard from our work. He survived in some wild patch in the region of the camp. We called him Bobby, an exotic name as one does with a cherished dog. He would appear at morning assembly and waited for us as we returned, jumping up and down and barking in delight. For him, there was no doubt that we were men, we were human beings. He went on to say, it was in such contrast to the way they were treated as less than human by their captors. He said, in this corner of Germany, where we were walking through the village and would be looked upon as the, at the villagers as despised Juden, this dog saw us differently us for human beings. We were, the condemned, we were condemned as contaminated carriers of germs by the villagers. This little dog welcomed us at the entrance of the camp 
barking, barking happily and jumping up and down amicably around us. Bobby the dog had recognized Lavinus and the rest of his captors as humanity. He saw them as human beings. What a contrast to the way that they were treated. And so often, we, the way we treat others, this, this dog may have had been onto something that so many of us frequently can't quite figure out. The way that we treat family members, the way that we treat some of those sitting in the pew next to us or those who are different from us as less than human, as those who are not image bearers, does not reflect the intention that God has for us. One of the reasons that's important to stop while most of the, the theology that we'll talk about, the doctrinal topics that we'll look at, revolve around God and His character and His ways, it's important to step back and look at the doctrine of humanity to realize what the Bible says about us. John Calvin has said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. It's important to know us as we seek to know God and to hear what God has to say about us. And in Matthew chapter 9, we get a little glimpse in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could, chose, we could have chosen from a number of passages, but this is just one glimpse of how he sees the people around him. If you found your place there in Matthew chapter 9, we'll begin reading at verse 35. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The first thing I want to make note of here is the, is the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. He, he says he was... His ministry focused on three things. Um, he, he, he taught in the synagogues, preached the good news of the kingdom, and healed diseases and sickness. That was Jesus' heartbeat as he traveled around the countryside. And it says here, when he saw the crowds, he saw those that, to whom he was ministering, it says he felt compassion. He felt compassion. His, his heart was moved. We've looked at this word before. This is a Greek verb that speaks of this, this warm and deep, compassionate response to those in need. There's not really one English word that can capture the essence of what is being said here. It's, it's compassion. It's, it's pity. It's sympathy. It's this, this deep fellow feeling. All of that brings it together. It, you could even translate it. His, his heart went out to them. This is a picture here of Jesus' gut response when he saw those who were in need. This, this is our Savior. This is how he saw people. There was nobody that he looked at and recoiled from. There, there was no one that he's like, mm, not today. He looked and there was, there was never anybody where they were, no matter where, they, and, and, they, and the Gospels like highlight this. They don't just like allude to it. They highlight this, right? Like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? He, he makes the outcast the hero of the story. Jesus never recoiled. 
didn't matter if it was a, a prostitute, a leper, a tax collector, the dredges of society came to his present, uh, in his presence and he was filled with compassion. He moved toward them. He did not step away in disgust, ever. Wow. But not only do we see the compassion of Jesus here, we see, secondly, the, the cause of that compassion. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Trinity and about how the love of the overflowing love of the triune God can not only motivate us to love others, but it, it is the, it's, the, it's the, the power that we, we, with which we do so. And, and so one answer to why did Jesus have compassion on the crowds? Why did he feel this way? Well, one answer that would be very true is that God is love. It's what he does. But notice, listen, look at the text very carefully here. It says in verse 36, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because... This is a Greek word that shows, that shows the, the connection between the two clauses here. Why did he have compassion? It says, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at them and he saw these people for who he is. He wasn't, he's not, Jesus is not just God shooting love beams everywhere he goes and it just happens to hit people at random, wherever he happens to be. But he, he saw them as individuals. He saw them for who they were and he saw their condition and their plight. And he saw that they were distressed and dejected. These Greek words, these, these verbs here are very, very strong. Uh, they, the, the, the first one, distressed, means to suffer trouble or harassment. It includes the picture of being tired, worn out, and weary. The word translated dejected here in my translation, um, it, 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 it gives actually the idea of uh, throwing something, with a, sometimes even with a violent motion, to toss aside these were people who had been, been thrown away, had been rejected. Your translations will use a variety of expressions here. That the people were worried and helpless. They were harassed and helpless. They were distressed and downcast. There's, the imagery here is, is of people who were lost and on their own, and there was nothing that they could do about it. They were utterly helpless. In fact, the, even the, the, the verb... The tense of the verb expresses that like this was an ongoing thing. This was been something that had been a, a characteristic of their lives. Jesus saw them, truly looked and saw them. You know, sometimes in our busy, busy lives, in our harried existence and jam-packed with stuff, we, we, don't, we don't stop to see people. We don't stop to see one another to listen and understand. We had some, uh, somebody was tailgating us the other day on the freeway, and I was feeling kind of irritated, and, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't passing the person I was passing quite fast enough for this individual. And I faced that temptation to just, just slow down and just run parallel to the car I was passing for a few miles, like that was just within me. And, uh, and my kids were only, like, encouraging some of those feelings a little bit, like, what a, what, a, what a jerk, what a jerk. And um, my wife, of course, bringing wisdom, she said, kids, never remember, there, there's, you, you never know what's going on inside of another car. You never know what's going on in, in that person's life. And I'm like, fine, all right, got it. <laughs> you know, so often we don't, we don't stop to listen to the story. We don't stop to, 
wonder what someone might be wrestling with, what someone's going through. Jesus stopped and he, he saw them for who they were. You see, the Bible teaches some profound things about who we are. And we have to be careful here, I realize, because there's, when we start talking about who we are as human beings and, and who we are in relationship to God, we, we can fall into a couple of ditches. We can, we can, get, we can get into a, what I call like maggot theology. I, in fact, I had a Bible teacher at Bible college, and he, had a lot of, a lot of, he taught us a lot of good things, but he would sometimes quote this passage in, um, in Job 25 and that, that uh, Bildad, one of Job's friends, uh, says this. He says, even, if even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less a human who is a maggot, a son of man who's a worm. And uh, he would joke about, hey, listen, we're all sinners. We're all just a bunch of maggots in God's sight. Well, what's interesting is that um, later on when God rebukes Job's friends, he said, you guys have not spoken correctly here. Like, you've, your theology has been bad. You talk all the way throughout the book, and you just have said, like, spewed incorrect theology. The rest of the scripture actually gives a better picture of humanity than what Bildad had. We're, we're, not, we're not maggots. I mean, have you ever seen maggots? Maggots are disgusting. And, 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 and it could be easy if, if we're taking only a, a portion of scripture or a verse or two out of context that, that describes our sinful heart. I mean, last, last summer we were going through the book of Jeremiah and we, we looked at what Jeremiah had to say about the heart. Listen, apart from God, we are in a, in a terrible mess. But if we take that too far and don't temper it with other scriptures, we could begin to go down this path that says, I'm just this vile sack of worthlessness, you know? And, and really, it could feed all kinds of like really, really bad theology, and then, but then you can get over on the other side, which I think in a lot of Christian circles, we struggle maybe over on this side today that speaks so highly of mankind that it's like, well, of course God saved us. I mean, how in the world would he have managed eternity without us being with him? Like, we are the greatest gift that God ever gave himself. Like, so if we're not careful, we can go to one of these two extremes, and, and unfortunately, a lot of modern-day worship songs come over this way, where it just really emphasizes the awesomeness of man, and we're like, God's over here like, ah, I kind of made him, I'm, I'm, I'm God, don't forget about that. And so we want to try to stay in the middle here of not going over to this maggot, I'm a useless worm theology, but over here, I'm the greatest gift that, uh, that God has ever known, sort of bad theology. Let's stay in the middle here and recognize like God is, God is the creator. In fact, it, he tells us in Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8, he says there that the Lord had, had had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the people, so not because of some, something that was on your resume, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. It was, it was God who chose us, God who brought us into his family, not because of something that we had to offer or because we were so spectacular, but because of his great love. So how do we stay in the, in the center? What is it that moved Jesus with compassion? If, if, it's, if he looks at their plight, we, we know that it, there, was, there was love in his own heart, but if he looks at their plight and saw something, what did he see that aroused his compassion? And I think the answer is found in Genesis chapter 1, and it's the image of God. 
What gives you and me intrinsic value? Why do we say that human life is precious? It's because God has created us in His image. Tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. It'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God made man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Theologians have attempted to plumb the depths of the meaning of those words for thousands of years. To try to understand what Scripture means when it talks about us being made in the image of God. What does that entail? I wish we had time this morning to try to do a systematic study of this concept. Feel free to do that on your own. Uh, search the image of God in the Bible and you'll, and you'll come up with probably more results than you anticipated. The Bible speaks frequently of the image of God in man, but doesn't ever really define it clearly as to what that means. Some have defined it as our ability as rational creatures to think. Uh, maybe throw in our ability uh, to have emotions. God has, has a mind. God has a will. God has emotions. There's that, those components. I, I still don't think that captures it. Um, some will say that it's because we're relational. God is a relational being, and to be sure that he is. But I don't think that even picks, pictures all of it. Because uh, all of these things fail to take into consideration what happens if, if um, my mind goes right, if due to illness, or what happens if I'm born without the ability to reason, if I have a disability, uh, if, if that is the, the picture or the, if the image of God resides in my ability to have rational thoughts, what happens when that rationality is not there anymore? Is the image of God gone? I, I don't think so. I think that it's deeper than that. One, one theologian puts it this way. The image of God or the imago Dei is not a quality or a capacity or reducible even to a function. It's a sovereignly and divinely bestowed status by which we become royal sons and daughters of our heavenly Lord. And it's universally true of every person irrespective of age, ethnicity, gender, or ableness. Stan Grentz calls it a special standing with God. And this status is a gift given to humanity, to you and to me, and it's from which springs a vocation to represent God in this world. We are His representatives to bear or to reflect His image. The imago is more of an identity, a God-given foundational reality out of which we understand ourselves as belonging to God and distinguished from the rest of the created order. The Imago Dei means that we were created to reflect God. If, uh, if, if you've ever taken a, a magnifying glass out in a hot, sunny day, uh, you know that you can do tremendous things by harnessing the power of sun. My, my kids, when they were little, discovered that, and I remember how much fun they had vanquishing ants and carving their names into sticks and everything. Well, imagine taking a mirror and as, as the sun in its brightness bears down, you can take that mirror and you can shine that light wherever you direct it. 
I, I think that's, that's maybe a little bit of a picture of what we were created to be as image bearers, to be ones who reflect God, not to be little gods or to somehow um, uh, become uh, divine in that way, but rather to reflect what is already there. Just as that mirror doesn't create the sun, but rather reflects it, so too are we made for that purpose, to be those who reflect the image of God. No other creature in this world can do that. There are some amazing creatures in this world, but they're not created to reflect the glory and the image of Almighty God. And what's powerful is when you begin to think then, well, what did sin have to do with this? Because there's some theologians who say that sin has marred the image of God or has even taken away the image of God in mankind. And I, I, don't, I don't think I agree with that. What I think, rather, is that sin has obscured that image. It's just like if you're holding that, that mirror reflecting the sun and, and in a big cloud bank comes in front of the sun. The, the sun didn't go anywhere, and that mirror can still reflect some of the light, but it's distorted. It's, it's somehow now blocked and obscured and is not able to reflect as brightly. You see, because I do believe that Scripture teaches that each and every person, not just Christians, have been stamped with that image of their Creator. That's why each and every human being is valuable. Now, the New Testament begins to teach us in places like Colossians 3, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and, and, and several others, that part of becoming a Christian is having that image renewed to become more like Christ. And it's an ongoing process. It could be equated even with sanctification, that spiritual growth process, that we're becoming more and more like the image of our Savior. What's crucial here is that we see each and every person in this world as bearers of the divine image, and not just like people we think are really good Christians, really spiritually sound individuals. Every single person has been made by God for this purpose. Here's where I think it gets practical by this doctrine, the doctrine of the imago Dei, the image of God. I think this is where it becomes practical. Look at what happens in the second half of these verses. Because Jesus felt compassion toward the crowds when he saw them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. He encountered that image that he had created in these men and women and children. His heart was moved with compassion. And then look what happens. He says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I've quoted that passage Hundreds of times is a missions passage, and it is a great missions passage. But I take those verses out of context, 37 and 38. Let's pray for laborers. But do you see what preceded that? It preceded Jesus encountering people in need. He saw them for who they were. And then he turns to his disciples and he said, Would you pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest? See, this is where I will continue to maintain throughout this series that theology is crucial and it impacts our lives. When we understand what the Bible says about the image of God in every single person, we'll stop seeing 
blurry faces, and, and they, they, the images sharpen, and you see souls, you see individuals who have, who have been abused, who have been hurt, who have been cast aside, who have been the subject, the object of racial slurs, is those who have disabilities and have been marginalized. We begin to see the image of God stamped upon their very souls. And I believe that our response should not just to be simply to say, oh, yeah, they are people too. It goes far beyond that. That's just the, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It goes far beyond that to where we see those all around us, everybody sitting next to you, shaped and formed in the image of God as people who desperately need the love of God. And just like Jesus, we move toward them. That's theology on mission. Theology on mission, first of all, it impacts how we view ourselves. The image of God, understanding the image of God impacts how we view ourselves. This morning, I don't, I don't know uh, what you think about yourself. There's some of you here that maybe think too highly of yourself. We got to temper it a little bit. But, but many of us come in here and, and we beat ourselves up pretty good. We're frustrated at our failures, discouraged by our defeats, overcome by temptation, and perhaps um, we, we feel like we're less than human. Perhaps we, maybe we feel a little bit the way that Levinas felt as he was in a Nazi concentration camp, treated less than human. Maybe we've come to believe a lie about ourselves such as that. Maybe it's not quite so low. Maybe it's somewhere up here where we just think, yeah, I mean, I deserve to live, but I'm not much better than that. God, God can't use me. God, I can't be effective for God. He's okay with me being a part of his family, but not particularly excited about it. You've been uniquely created by God for a purpose. This is not some modern notion of, hey, everybody's a champion, everybody's a winner, and everybody gets a trophy because you're as awesome as everybody else. That, that cheapens and that minimizes what God's word tells us about who we are. He didn't just make a bunch of people and toss us out here on earth. He formed and made you specifically. He knows you inside and out, and he has placed his image on you. You are valuable because he has said you're valuable, not just because the pastor up here on the platform says you're valuable or your mom pinned a gold star on your chest. You're valuable because the creator of the universe who formed you and knows you by name has said you are valuable. A little while ago, my kids asked me, what are my favorite animated movies of all time? I, I'm no good with those questions. I, I, don't, I don't have a favorite band. I don't have a favorite song. I don't have a favorite movie. I, I'm not any good at that. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that, I remember liking that one. Yeah, okay. I was kind of racking my brain. I said, you know, right up there, I don't know if I could put it at the top, but it's right up there, is the Toy Story movies. I still love watching those Toy Story movies. Um, because I was so sure that my toys did that kind of stuff when I walked out of the room, you know? 
And it, would, like, it just confirmed everything that I always suspected. There's, um, there's a powerful uh, picture in the second movie towards the beginning uh, Andy is the, the the boy who owns all the toys is getting ready to leave for summer camp and uh, is gathering a couple of toys to take with him and Woody his favorite toy the main character of the the show can't find his cowboy hat and is worried that he's gonna get taken to camp uh, without his cowboy hat and he, he's not he's not himself he's not Woody if he doesn't have his hat and he's frantic well Bo Peep com, com, comes along and is trying to get him to calm down and. She says, Woody, look under your boot. And he said, don't be silly. My hat is not under my boot. She said, would you just look? So he lifts up his foot and he says, you see, no hat, just the word Andy. She said, that's right. And the boy who wrote that will take you to camp with or without your hat. And it's such a simple statement. But Woody had defined his identity by his his hat, his gear, what he was wearing, being able to be, uh, have everything all together. And I wonder sometimes what we define our identity as. Maybe it is our clothes, like Woody. Maybe it's our bank account. Maybe it's our friends. Maybe it's our job or our standing, what other people think of us. My goodness, the list could go on and on and on that we find our identity in. And what sometimes God will do in his grace is he takes away your hat. He takes away that false identity that you've built something on. Not to toy with you like some malevolent deity, but to get you to realize that your identity is not found in how many Bible studies you're in, how great your kids turn out, or what their grades are in school, or what, what you make at your job, or how many vacations you get to go on, or how early you're able to retire. Fill in the blank, because all of us, all of us have a blank to fill in that we wrestle with. We're all tempted to find our identity somewhere else. And at some point, God in his goodness is going to take that away from you. And I say goodness because he loves you too much to build your life on some false trust and putting your rest in something that's just going to burn someday, that's going to go away. When we realize that he has stamped his divine nature upon us, that by nature of drawing breath, we are spectacular beings. Not because of what I've done or anything, but because of who he says you and I are. This doctrine not only impacts how we view ourselves, but how we treat others. You see, love is the most natural and expected way of acting towards those formed and shaped in God's image. When we see one another as fellow image bearers, the natural inclination of our hearts ought to be to move toward them in compassion. C.S. Lewis has famously said, I love this quote, he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never, ever talked to a mere mortal. When we begin to really grasp this doctrine, the doctrine of the image of God 
and every man, woman, and child, it really truly begins to change how you view the people that you have trouble forgiving, the people that get under your skin, the people whose skin looks different from yours. There was a Dutch bicycle manufacturer by the name of Van Moof. That's a pretty cool name. And uh, they were having trouble. They noticed that they, they, they did most of their business, do most of their business online, and they noticed that a lot of their bikes were arriving uh, damaged in the shipping process, uh, the boxes, and then eventually the, the bikes that were packaged in them uh, were, were getting ruined, and they were getting sent back, and the company was losing a lot of money. And so they put their heads together to try to find a solution. And one of the things they came up with, uh, and it ended up being genius, was they realized that their, box, their boxes were large, about yay big, and they were about the size of a flat screen TV. And previously, they had stamped a picture of a bicycle on the box, and, and they were ending up frequently ruined. But what they decided to do was put a picture of a television on the box, and then they put a picture of a bicycle on the television that was on the box. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the damage done to the bicycles decreased by 70 to 80%. Because, simply because, those handling the boxes all of a sudden viewed them differently. You know, if, if we look at each other as just faceless individuals. The cashier is someone that I've got to get past in order to get home with my groceries. Your kid's teacher is someone who has a job to do and they better do it right or else. The people in our household is inconveniences, frustrations. We will not value one another as fellow image bearers. But when we begin to see differently, when we begin to see through the eyes of God the spectacular creations that each and every one of us are, I believe not only does it change our hearts, I believe it changes our view of ourselves, changes our view of others. But to take it a step further, I think it should also move us outward. Be because the fields are white unto harvest. There are needy people everywhere we go that need the love and the grace and the kindness of God. And some of those people will annoy you. Some of those people will get under your skin. Some of those people will hurt you. But may we see them through the eyes of God. May we see the image of God in one another. You know, this morning we get the privilege of having communion together. And, and this change in our hearts of how we view ourselves, of how we view one another, it can only happen because of the cross. It can only happen because Jesus, the perfect human being, the, one, the only one who perfectly images the Father, has come and died in our place, took our sin upon Him, 
so that the image of God in us could be renewed. I love, I think it's, it is 2 Corinthians 3, 18. I wish I would have put it on the screen, but it, it, it talks about as we behold Christ, we are, are, are formed more into that glory, that beauty of Jesus as we spend time beholding him. As we see the one who is the perfect image of God, as we behold the one who went to the cross and rose again from the grave, for you and for me, we're transformed into that image. And the image of God continues to be renewed in us until that day when Jesus calls us home and we will fully reflect his image the way that we were meant to. As we have communion together, I just want to say, if you've, if you've never had communion with us, in a, in a moment after we have a, a time of prayer, just come on up out of your seats and you can come to one of these three stations and grab a piece of bread and some juice. In the center station here, we have... Um, uh, gluten-free bread, if, if that's uh, something that you need. And then we also have um, the, the benevolence baskets you'll see here. Just if you feel led to give over and above uh, your normal giving, uh, this we do once a month to help those in our church family that um, we take up this offering to help those who might be in a special need. And so we would invite you to do that if you feel led by God's Spirit to do so. We don't require that you be a member here at Brown Corners. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if, if He is your Savior, we want to invite you to Come share the table with us. The bread representing the body of our Savior, the juice representing the blood that he shed on our behalf so that we could be united to him and, um, and just become that, begin that process of being renewed in the image of God. As we celebrate that today also, I just, I just want to invite you, if God's been speaking to you and in some way through our time this morning, there'll be some of us up front that we would love to pray with you afterwards. Um, or even during communion, uh, just would love to minister to you if, if there's some way that we can do that. Let's just take a moment. I want to give you a, a few moments to just talk to God, and so we're just going to quietly bow our heads here for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of this time we have to come and worship in this way. We've been able to worship through communion with one another. We've been able to worship through song, through the hearing and the proclamation of your word, and through prayer. God, and we just want to continue our worship as we commune with you through the, the table that represents what you have done for us in sending Jesus to the cross. And even more than just a, a chance to remember and to reflect back, this is a chance to enter into your grace in a powerful and a unique way, a way that we can't even fully explain. And so, Lord, we participate in this together. Father, if any of us are in a place where our hearts are not right with you, may we, may we make that right before we come to your table. If we have people that we need to make things right, may you, your conviction um, not be pressed aside. May your spirit not be quenched in that regard, but may we, may we uh, lean into what you're speaking to us about, Lord. And I pray, Father, for, for us here as we reflect on what your word has taught us this morning. I, I pray, God, that we would, we would remember the, the purpose 
of Jesus' death and resurrection and the, the uniqueness, the reforming and the, the bringing uh, into a, a new, um, fresh relationship the image of God that you've stamped on each and every person. Lord, transform our view of one another and may we love as Jesus loved, not only uh, in, in because you first loved us, but because of your image being on every single person here. Lord, just may you be pleased with our worship here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please come.
front of our minds this, this week as we go out and we're trying to be the hands and feet of Christ, that we can also just reflect him as best we can. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, God. Help us to apply it to our lives, Father. As we go today, God, let us follow you best we can. Amen, church. Bless you.